Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, it's probably if I tried to tell people if the fact if there were, if there weren't the documents to back it up, they'd think I was making up the story because it was just it had so many twists and turns. It it just kept getting worse and worse. My career is now spanned about over thirty years, and um, hopefully, I won't have anything that rises to that level again. You just heard from former Lake Mary Police Chief Richard Berry and former Maitland Police Chief Gary Calhoun commenting on the tragic ending of the life of Brian Christopher Randall and the destruction he left behind 14 years ago following his unforeseen descent into violence. His actions during the last 36 hours of his life left a lasting impression on both men. We will hear more from them, as well as two journalists who covered the Randall case. Coming up, on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the arrest of a Lake Wales firefighter who was accused of throwing a water bottle during a fit of road rage and striking an elderly woman while both were traveling north on a busy highway. Then, in our Only in Florida segment, we'll hear from a Jacksonville Sheriff's Office spokeswoman about the arrests of two men who got caught stealing a light pole that was struck down by Hurricane Irma. They were caught after witnesses saw them tie down the oversized metal pole onto the roof of an SUV and then drive across the Wonderwood Bridge. And finally, in our Looking Back segment, we'll discuss the horrifying case of Brian Christopher Randall, a former Ivy League basketball star who murdered two of his children and then ended his own life by setting off an explosive wreck on Interstate 4 in Lake Mary. My guests for that segment will be police chiefs Richard Berry and Gary Calhoun, as well as former Orlando Sentinel journalist Mark Schlub and New York-based sports writer Roger Rubin, who covered the Randall story for the New York Daily News. I'll discuss the road rage incident in Lakeland after the break. Stephanie Dudley was flabbergasted Tuesday evening when she saw a driver of a Toyota Camry throw a water bottle at her mother while traveling northbound on US 98 in Lakeland. Dudley was driving her mother, Linda Carraway, to her home when the latter was struck in the arm with a bottle. 
The driver of the Toyota, Deshaun Broom, is a Lake Wales firefighter. He was charged with battery on a person 65 years or older, according to the Polk County Sheriff's Office. Dudley said the Toyota had been driving slowly, so she passed the vehicle in her Dodge Charger. It was then that both women heard a loud popping noise. The 67-year-old Caraway felt an object strike her on the shoulder and felt liquid splashing against her. She later told authorities she saw the motorist in the Toyota throw the bottle at her. What was it that he threw? I'm not sure it had liquid in it. Because yeah. we was going to turn and he was going straight on 98 mm-hmm. and then it hit the passenger side and my windows were down and it hit my mom right in the shoulder. Okay. And whatever liquid it was went all over the side of my car. Eight. Dudley remained on the phone with the 911 operator while she followed Broom. Minutes after the bottle was thrown, Broom was pulled over by a deputy. Broom told the deputy that he was cut off by Dudley, and out of anger, he threw a partially empty plastic water bottle out of his window toward the car. Broom had a passenger with him, but she declined to give a statement. Caraway suffered redness and swelling on her right upper arm, but she declined medical attention. Broom is a four-year veteran of the Lake Wales Fire Department. The Lakeland Ledger has reported that Broom has been suspended and the agency is investigating the incident. Tuesday's occurrence on the Lakeland Highway conjures memories of another road rage incident that occurred one night in March 2013 when a Flagler County firefighter threw a water jug at an SUV on US-1 in St. Augustine Shores. In that incident, firefighter Jared Parkey wound up with two bullet wounds to his chest. He survived, but pleaded guilty to two misdemeanor charges. He was permitted to keep his job. The shooter, former Flagler Beach police officer Nathaniel Jaradovac, pleaded guilty to attempted manslaughter and was sentenced to more than four years in prison. He was released in June and is serving probation. Coming up, a story about a pair of accused looters in Jacksonville who may have been overly ambitious with their loot. Following Hurricane Irma, there have been various arrests of people looting homes and businesses. In those cases, they've been stealing clothes, generators, and firearms. But a story out of Jacksonville may be the most bizarre looting tale of all. Two Jacksonville area men were charged with grand theft after tying down a light pole they had found along State Road A1A. The pole was lying near the road due to the strong gusts from Irma, which roared through the area September 10th and 11th. The pole is owned by JEA, the electric utility company that provides service to the Jacksonville area and other parts of Florida. Here is Jacksonville Sheriff's Deputy Melissa Bujeda describing what witnesses saw when they called in the alleged pole theft. After the storm had come through Jacksonville, uh, a citizen actually called in saying that there was a vehicle driving down the road with a light pole on top of it. And obviously a very suspicious circumstance, so an officer was dispatched to the area, and sure enough, the officer observed the vehicle with the light pole and conducted a traffic stop. Um, and 
two occupants were in the vehicle and they were asked to step out of the vehicle and detain due to the fact that they were in possession of a light pole and didn't work for JEA or the city of Jacksonville. That pole was more than 20 feet in length. The suspects, Blake Waller, age 42, and Victor Appeller, age 46, had little to say when they were questioned by the deputy. They said they were just trying to remove it out of the roadway. Um, and when they were asked why they didn't just roll it out or call 911 or JEA uh, to notify them of the situation, they just put their heads down. Once a review of the suspect's pawn shop habits were discovered, it was easy for detectives to surmise what the pair had planned to do with the pole, which was valued at more than $2,500. Further investigation revealed that one of the individuals had uh, 73 pawn transactions and 72 of them were scrap metal related just since January 1st, 2017. So most likely that was going to be their intent. Waller and Appeller strapped the pole on the car, and because the end stretched so far, it looked hazardous to anyone who saw it heading west along the Wonderwood Bridge. A photo of the two men sitting on the curb handcuffed was shared thousands of times on social media. The photo also showed the pole on top of the vehicle. One of the suspects tied a rack to the rear end of the pole, but that was not an effective way to make it safer for other motorists who were sharing the road with Waller and Appeller. I'm not quite sure how they thought they were going to get away with it. Um, the, where they took it from is a very busy, traveled area, the road they were driving down. Uh, and obviously it would be a concern to anyone driving by wondering what the heck is going on here. And actually we posted it to our social media and people were like, oh, thanks for the follow-up. I drove by and wondered why the car had a light pole on top of it. Um, but we're just thankful that the citizens that did call it in called it in. Coming up, we'll take a look at a horrifying murder-suicide involving a father and his children that garnered national attention 14 years ago. Christopher Randall opened his suicide note with the following sentence. Dear family and friends, why must be the question on your minds? There is no explanation as to why a former Ivy League basketball star and a once successful businessman could have drowned his two-year-old daughter, attempted to drown his four-year-old son, and follow that by intentionally driving his SUV with his sedated eight- and six-year-old sons in the back seat into the path of a multi-ton semi hauling automobiles along Interstate 4 in Lake Mary. That crash happened 14 years ago last Friday. It killed the 37-year-old Randall, as well as his 8-year-old son, Brian Jr. Randall's 6-year-old son, Julian, survived his injuries. The day before, a fisherman discovered a 4-year-old Regal floating in Lake Destiny in Maitland. Regal was barely breathing, but he was hospitalized and survived. But the lifeless body of his two-year-old sister, Yana, was discovered nearby by responding paramedics. The violent rampage Randall chose to carry out came in the wake of a split from his wife and the ensuing custody battle. 
If that separation was the match, then the fuse may have been the years of strain that came with Randall's financial troubles. Those troubles can be attributed to the number of jobs he was laid off from during the last few years of his life. Among the fleet of journalists who covered the story was former Orlando Sentinel reporter Mark Schlue, now a spokesman for the University of Central Florida. The case had a lasting impact on him. At the time this happened, I have two sons, and at the time this happened, um, they were around the same ages. And uh, I also, around that time, happened to have been going through a divorce myself. And so I was sort of looking at it through that lens and, and thinking, you know, no matter how bad things got, and, you know, even as a parent going through something like that, you worry what's going to become of your children if they're going through a divorce, which is an awful thing. But how do you kind of get from that point of worry and anxiety to the point where you decide the best decision is to uh, kill your children and yourself. And that's the thing that has really struck me is, is what was going on in, in his mind and uh, what was it that made him snap. And I think that's it's just kind of a psychological mystery to me that has, that's, that's the kind of thing I think about. Like, why, why would he do that? What made him do that? Not long before Randall's murderous breakdown, he was happily married to his wife, Lisa. And they lived together with her four children in their home in Altamont Springs. From the outside, the couple and their four children looked like the All-American family. Randall was raised in a poor section of Buffalo. He played basketball at Dartmouth, where he was a star point guard. His all-time assist record remained intact for a decade. His peers said he was one improved jump shot away from playing in the NBA. During his senior year, Dartmouth was one win away from winning the Ivy League championship and earning an automatic bid to the NCAA tournament, something the Big Green program still hasn't done since 1959. The team instead lost a heartbreaker to Yale in the last game of the season. Randall had fouled out in the last minutes. Afterward, he sat in the locker room and wept. His teammates felt badly not only for the loss, but they felt for their charismatic leader, who poured everything he had into his collegiate basketball career. When he was a freshman, the team finished 5-21. and 21. The team he led as a senior finished 18-8. and eight. Randall was beloved by teammates, none of whom could see him going down the dark path he chose for himself and his family. New York-based sports writer Roger Rubin was covering college basketball for the New York Daily News at the time. One of his editors remembered Randall as a player at Dartmouth, and he assigned the story to Rubin. Rubin still recalls the sorrow from Randall's former teammates, as well as their confused sentiments. I think that they really had trouble reconciling the guy that they knew uh, in college and, and, and in years after with the 
the monster who did these things, you know, drowned two of his kids, took his other kids into his car and, you know, pulled out in front of a truck carrying automobiles. Uh, you know, they, they didn't recognize this guy, but my guess is that he stopped being recognizable to them you know in in the year or two before that they couldn't understand how he had gotten from point a to point b i mean and they were and they were crushed deeply saddened that the, that their friend had gone down this path and i think uh, I, I think also uh, you know i i don't know that you can really use the word legacy here but you know the last actions of, of of Randall's life are the ones that he that defined him, and not the not the wonderful ones that they were all there to experience with him when he was in college. After finishing college in 1988, Randall moved to Washington D.C. and started working for AT&T. Six years later, he married his wife, Lisa, and the two wasted no time starting a family. The first signs of a tailspin came in 1997, when Randall first filed for bankruptcy. Those financial problems were exacerbated in 2000, when he was laid off by AT&T. The following year, he moved his family to Altamont Springs, but his professional life continued to sputter. He was laid off from two more jobs during the next three years. One of those jobs was with WorldCom, which was plagued by an accounting scandal that resulted in a 25-year prison sentence for its top executive and a five-year jail sentence for his chief financial officer. Randall could not stop his life from hemorrhaging. Tension had been mounting between him and Lisa when he suspected she was having an affair. His suspicions were confirmed after he began secretly recording his wife's phone conversations. The two agreed to divorce, but they insisted on doing so without lawyers. That's probably what led to this bizarre quid pro quo. Randall threatened to send a newsletter to Lisa's friends and family detailing her adultery. To prevent him from doing so, Lisa consented to perform a series of videotaped sex acts with Randall. The couple actually signed a contract. Randall later threatened to notify the wife of Lisa's lover of the affair, and Lisa agreed to more duties, including detailing the car, cleaning the house, and preparing more meals. Then Randall recorded a make-believe radio show aimed to demean his wife. He would interview her and ask her personal questions. Former Lake Mary Police Chief Richard Berry still recalls the rage Randall had for his wife. He went overboard with a spite after learning that his wife had strayed. The uh, infidelity was the thing that really pushed his buttons probably the most. And in this particular case, the uh, guy that she was having an affair with, we were surprised he didn't murder him along the way because of his anger and jealousy. So, yeah, it was it was an ugly case, but uh, it, it's hard to believe. But 
could have been even uglier. Lisa testified during a court hearing that her estranged husband had never been violent toward her or the children. But his behavior leading up to the hearing was becoming so erratic that she feared for her own safety. During that hearing, which took place less than three weeks before Randall's suicide, a Seminole County judge granted Lisa's request for an order of protection. The judge allowed Randall to see his children once per week and every other weekend. Lisa did not fight that. Here is Schlub explaining how no one, not even Randall's wife, predicted how Randall's behavior would manifest weeks later. But even then, what I was struck by, uh, when she filed that, that protective order, she told you know the judge that she did fear, uh, was in fear for her life from him. But she did not say she feared that he would do any harm to the children. So, you know, even she did not see anything like this coming. The judge rejected Randall's request to have the children spend every night with their father because he was living out of a hotel room at the time, which wasn't suitable for four young children. The judge didn't know the half of it. Randall's hotel room was a peculiar scene. When it was searched by police after his death, they found his diploma hanging on the wall and his mother's ashes in an urn on a table. His mother had died a few years earlier. Here is Barry describing what his officers saw in the room. It was like uh, it was his everything that was dear to him was he, he made sure was in that hotel room, and it was it was we kind of viewed it as like as kind of like a shrine. It was his. It was it was kind of his shrine. On September 13th, one day before he drowned his daughter, and two days before the crash, Randall left a message with an old girlfriend. One of his college teammates described the message to Reuben as a please save me message. People knew his life had hit the skids and there was concern, but it was mainly for him and not his children. On September 14th, Randall took his two youngest children to Lake Destiny in Maitland and tossed them both into the water. Police believed he had already tried to kill his daughter by slitting her throat in the hotel room. The scene at the lake after the drowning still affects Reuben. There was like a dock or a pier that was where uh, that was on the lake where this had happened, and people in the community had built a sort of shrine of teddy bears that were just sitting on the dock, and you know this. That's, you know, that's an image that I think is going to stay with me because it was very powerful. Later that day, Lisa went to a Burger King where she had dropped off the children two days earlier. Randall and the kids didn't show. By then, Maitland police had already discovered the children in the lake and had launched an investigation. 
They didn't know who the children belonged to. So that evening, which was a Sunday, detectives released a hospital photo of Regal, the surviving child. That decision was a tricky one, as Calhoun, who was the Maitland deputy chief at the time, explains. Yeah, that was it was a little tough, actually. I remember, you know, thinking about that of do we um, you know, typically we protect juvenile identities and we don't want to get information like that out, but uh, we felt like in this case um, you know, we had to find out uh, where they were from, who they belonged to, and uh, so we ended up making that call to... Lisa didn't see the media coverage until Monday. She contacted Maitland Police at 7 a.m. Police were interviewing her, and they were getting ready to issue an Amber Alert to be on the lookout for Randall and his two older sons. It was then that a report was issued that astonished them. Randall had pulled his 2000 Dodge Durango into the eastbound emergency lane of I-4. With his handwritten suicide note beside him, as well as the homemade sex tapes he had made with Lisa, and with his sons strapped in their seats, he swerved the Durango sharply into the path of the semi. Barry says Randall devised a way to keep his sons calm during the moments before the crash. We're confident that that he had bought some diphenhydramine, um, uh, which is you know sleep aid, and we're convinced that he gave that to the kids um, so that while he was sitting there on the side of the road, they wouldn't be panicking or screaming or, or anything like that. The semi crashed broadside into the vehicle. The driver of that semi had no time to stop. Randall died at the scene. His oldest son was hospitalized, but his head trauma was so severe, doctors could not save him. He was pronounced dead the day after the crash. In an Orlando Sentinel article published two weeks after Randall's death, it was reported that Randall had duct tape, rope, knives, and ant poison in his vehicle. Detectives concluded that Lisa was fortunate Randall could not find her the morning of his death. Otherwise, he may have wanted to torture her. He had all the supplies to do so. He also hammered out a list of the ways he had planned to do harm to her. Here is Chief Barry recalling that. If he could have found her, there's no doubt in our mind he was going to murder her. Um, I mean, clearly from, you know, the other thing that stands out about that case is that guy left very detailed notes. I mean, he had he had a very specific agenda, and uh, he was hell-bent on making sure that uh, his entire family was dead. Randall chose that spot on I-4 for a reason. And there's no doubt, you know, the reason he did that crash on I-4 in front of AAA was because he knew she worked there and she'd see it. Uh, that That's the anger and the rage in this guy. He knew that she would be at work and that she would see that crack. Randall also chose the vehicle. He sat and waited on the side of I-4 until he saw the biggest, heaviest vehicle rolling down the highway. The crash did more than just end the life of Randall and his oldest son and caused more anguish to a grieving mother. It also disrupted the life of that truck driver. Schlub said the man suffered a severe back injury that kept him out of work for more than a year. 
he was raising not only his own children, but those of his sisters, too. A fundraiser was held for him years after the crash. You know, that's not something I'm sure um, that uh, Mr. Randall thought of as he was, or cared about, as he was steering that uh, SUV into that semi, but it wasn't just his own wife he was, he was hurting. Barry, who is now the police chief at the University of Central Florida, still remembers the media conference he held near the scene of the crash. It's the toughest he's ever done. Yeah, I got to tell you, it was one of the most difficult um, news conferences I've ever done. Um, because, again, you know, her children uh, are in the hospital in critical condition trying to recover. Um, she's got to be planning funerals, and we're trying to um, do this balancing act of the of the public's right to know, but also trying to protect the family that is, you know, that we're hoping will survive. Schlub did not have an easy time with the case either. It made him think about his own two sons. This, this very well was probably the story that affected me most, yeah. Because, um, you know, when you have kids that age and you put, you can't help but think of them and think about what his children must have been thinking, you know, when he was um, throwing those two young children in the pond to, uh, to drown. And then, uh, you know, did his, did his other two children witness that? What must have been going through their heads? How much, how much fear they must have had? So, yeah, it, uh, it was rough. It's a bad story. It's a bad situation all around. Lisa, who no longer uses the surname Randall, has remarried. Julian and Regal are now 20 and 18 years old, respectively. Their mother still lives in Florida and works in health care. The question posed by Randall in the first line of his six-page suicide note still persists. Some of his motives were outlined in the rest of the letter, but everyone who investigated and reported on Randall's demise and the demise of his two children and everyone who knew Randall well still struggle with that question. It persists with no answer. Ruben still wrestles with it. You know, you, you, you hear something like this or you, you know, or this is your working theory and, it, you know, it comes apart very quickly. Okay, fine. If you're, if you can't bear the thought of your wife raising the children, why are you killing yourself instead of raising? I mean, it's, it's senseless. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's right. The question is why? Um, and you know, I, it's a fragile mind that goes down this road. You know, it's, uh, at some point, you know, uh, I, I guess that he goes through whatever psychologists call it, some sort of a break with reality and thinks that this is the solution. I mean, it's, it's, it's awful. A person who thinks that this is a solution and then acts on it is a monster. Thank you for listening. Next week, we'll re-examine a quadruple murder that occurred on the high seas. Two men hijack a charter boat named Joe Cool, headed from Miami to the island of Bimini. 
The hijackers were found adrift on a raft and were picked up by the U.S. Coast Guard and the FBI. They were charged with murder and sentenced to life in prison. Among my guests for next week will be South Florida attorney and true crime author Carol Cope. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.